0: Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastor. As you know, we love a special guest. This time, it's a writer who I spoke to very recently. Who was in L.A. This was Joel Selvin, who's just brought a book out titled Hollywood Eden, Electric Guitars, Fast Cars and the Myth of the California um, Paradise, which has just come out on hardback, available from all good bookshops, and it tells a story based in the 60s of uh, the Beach Boys and Jan and Dean to the Birds and the Mamas and Papas. He's an amazing writer who's also done books on very, a lot of other people, including The Grateful Dead and uh, the such like. oh, and The Rolling Stones, Altamont, that's a classic. So do check out his um, other books on various websites or bookshops. So, after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that very exciting, and subject that was the moment that joel suddenly became obsessed with music and the rest became his life anyway over to you
1: well i i dropped out of berkeley high school in june of 1967 to short of graduation and that fall i went to work at the san francisco chronicle as a copy boy and that gave me access to the guest list at the fillmore right and I saw Cream, I saw Hendrix, you know, I saw everybody. I went every week, sometimes twice a week. I was out six nights a week seeing bands and working at the newspaper. And and, and the whole thing just took me away. And I, I I had a post at the Chronicle by the time I was 22. Right. But I'd been writing for him for years by then.
0: Yes. Well, it's interesting because I did an interview with Nick Kent who was with the NME, and he started writing when he was seventy in 1973, roughly. And he said the thing what he realised was that all the writers who were there were still expecting the Beatles to reform and you <laughs> know and, and sort of and were waiting for the 60s to come back. And he thought, no, the 60s are gone. That's that's kind of over. We're looking at the next thing, which is going to be punk and all that kind of malarkey. So did you feel like you knew that you were on a sort of musical zeitgeist?
1: Well, San Francisco uh, in the '70s uh, was like a, uh, in many ways, like a party that the people who were at had stayed too long, and the 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 merriment and frivolity had peaked some time ago. Uh, so there was a certain amount of that, but the fact remained that the 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 international music scene was so vital and and so extraordinary that instead of finding new bands in north beach every week they came through town every weekend you know they played at winterland or later they played at the kabuki theater and the san francisco was on the map so we saw it all uh if the glory days of 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 san francisco music what with you know the airplane the dead quicksilver all the way through uh sly and the family stone credence clearwater santana all that had ebbed away, and and you know what came out of the San Francisco music scene in in the '70s was more, uh, uh, um, I want to say, a pedestrian fare. Pablo Cruz, Huey Lewis in the News, Journey. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it was much more commercial stuff. Whereas the the things that we saw happening in, in front of us in the '60s was very cultural, very mm-hmm. much you know. I guess, out of I, guess,
0: I guess by then, you know, people like Randy California was kind of, it sounded a bit passe, didn't it, really? Spirit. Oh, the, the,
1: everything moved so fast uh, that people were left behind in the land of pop obsolescence every week.
0: Yes. And did you find yourself getting, because you've been in that sort of department or that that area, did you get yourself interested in theater as well, like things like the cockettes? that was also kind of happening? Oh, the cockettes
1: were wonderful, but I I wouldn't have thought of them as theater. Uh, I I suppose uh, they were, although I don't remember the theater critic for the Chronicle paying them much (laughs) uh, uh, attention. Uh, The cockettes were part of the monde of San Francisco, which still existed at that point. And it was a really lively, exciting, imaginative place. Do uh, you know what band uh, came out of that um, uh, 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 scene was the Tubes. Right. They, they were very much sort of a product of the San Francisco monde, and, and they mingled with that crowd to a great degree.
0: And I guess the uh, Sylvester, who went on to become this kind of disco Prince, Princess, he, he was also part of that crew for a while, wasn't he? So he obviously- Oh, he
1: was a, 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 like the um, cabaret singer of the Cockettes. Uh, he, he'd sit down at a piano and just, just knock uh, everybody dead with like uh, a Leonard Cohen song or something. And they dressed like Billie Holiday.
0: Yes. So as you as the decade progressed, we realized that the 70s had so much from the glam to the prog to heavy metal and rock, and then punk, did you manage as a, as a sort of writer were you enjoying in embracing all this sort of things that were coming along or were you occasionally thinking, God, I just run for the days of Working Man's Dead and American Beauty?
1: Well, you'd get, probably get a different story of that <clears throat> from my readers than, than uh, I would have. But to me, anything that made a good newspaper article was interesting to me. So I, I embraced the punk scene insofar as that they were great copy and there was something going on there. Uh, I, I, I don't, I don't think I was an adherent, a an, uh, uh, you know, an advocate. I, I think I was more of a, a outside observer, but I kept my eye on all that stuff. And, and, and it was good, lively fun. The lead singer of the dead Kennedys, uh, Jello Biafra ran for mayor. I guess that'd be about like 1979, 77, right in there. 79 would have to be, wouldn't it? Um, and, uh, I, I latched onto that as a, as a, as a, Chronicle story and yes. gave him a lot of coverage uh and and I got hoorahed around the around the newsroom for that because you know they were still attached to the old politics of San Francisco past and 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 when Jello finished fourth I could hold my head up high when I walked through the newsroom the next time
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes absolutely it's a it's a kind of fascinating so when so with, with um Hollywood Hollywood Eden when did you get the idea to um to start to put this book together,
1: the ignition point uh, followed uh, the release of 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 a book I did in 2014 called "Here Comes the Night," which was a biography of a, a rhythm and blues songwriter named Burt Burns that worked in New York in the '60s, and it was a very much of an ensemble piece that it, it had as many main characters as 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 a. a, a know a dickens novel or something uh so they were all wound into this and and <clears throat> it was pointed out to me that uh it it, it read like a mini series but it didn't because i had uh, concentrated so hard on um y- you know more uh academic uh aspects of it i mean i made sure every record was mentioned and every session was covered all that kind of stuff so i i started thinking about like a narrative that would support that kind of a visual episodic ensemble uh, event, and I and I quickly landed on this University High class of 1958, which just seemed like the uh, starting point of of a great bunch of stories that stayed sort of tangled together for a number of years.
0: Yes, absolutely, because because obviously this is kind of pre-Beatles, this is a pre-everything. And and in, in the UK, you know, we have people like Lonnie Donegan or I don't know, you know, Lonnie Donegan seems to feature really big in a lot of people's kind of inspiration and skiffle. So this is quite a different scene, isn't it? This sort of, the West well, Coast- I circus. remember
1: the British pop music scene before um, the Beatles, because I went to London County Council Secondary Moderns for a year in, in 1961 <laughs> and 62. Right. And uh, I remember, you know, the television news covering Helen Shapiro dropping out of school. <laughs> <laughs> wow! So,
0: how did you find yourself at the, at the county council? On,
1: on... My my father had a uh, a fellowship and 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 studied uh, in England for a year, uh, and I came along. Um, you know, I have a I have a strong uh, uh, heartfelt connection to London. It, it, it was the best year of my childhood. I was right. twelve years old. It was just splendid.
0: Yeah, absolutely that must be that must be quite something so then sort of putting this big book together because as you realize and sort of sort of have I've sort of started reading it a lot of these characters i mean there's a dark underbelly to a lot of this isn't there which is quite strange and sort of quite grim at times so that that must i mean music has and writing about music and and sort of talking about music has altered a bit because when i was growing up in the 70s and the 80s say, you know, when, when people used to get interviewed and said, you know, why did you get into music? They used to say it was just sex, drugs, and rock and roll, didn't they? And then someone must have said, could you just stop saying that? Because you know it was a little bit too much. So delving into some of the characters within this particular publication, there must be sort of aspects that are slightly kind of tricky to, not tricky, but to, to sort of write about.
1: I just sent um, a book off to Lou Adler Who was uh, uh, helpful and cooperative in in researching the book, and and I I don't know how he's going to see himself in its pages. Uh, uh, You know, he's portrayed in 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 a, a, a a stark light. Let's call it a stark light. And I wrote him. I said, I hope you enjoy the book. I tried to keep it real. Yes, and, and and that's the story there. You know, I I wanted to, the story to feel real. I wanted it to be real. Uh, I w- I wanted the reader to be able to sense how it was for these people to be that way.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And because it's kind of a part of the six, well, the fifth late fifties, and then going into the sixties, it's often sort of forgotten. Did you feel the the sort of the need or, or the want to sort of? try and portray it a bit more and to sort of highlight more aspects of it than what you know what's often been mentioned
1: there were things that fascinated me about the story uh, a, 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 such as the uh, whole nature of, of of a young and small uh, Los Angeles and this this growing culture that was part of a uh, geographic expansion and a commercial and industrial and in every way uh so that was like a wave underneath what my my the characters in the book were were going through was this this fantastic cultural uh ascension of california and california as not just a state of the union but as a state of mind
0: yes absolutely because obviously after you sort of came to London in the sort of early '60s, you must have sort of realized there was such a sort of cultural and a consumer difference between the two, you know, mindsets that that must have been even to a young person must have been quite obvious.
1: The first thing that every kid on the schoolyard wanted to know when I was in London was, had I been to Disneyland? Right. See, in- Disneyland opened in 1955, and. Uh, Walt Disney was just merciless at promoting that little amusement park in the strawberry fields of Anaheim on his weekly television show. I what wonderful world of Disney or Walt, I don't know what it was called, but it was always one of the most popular shows uh, on television and kids all over the country and indeed all over the world saw this amusement park and were just captivated by the whole idea and and to me that was like the first spark of California uh reaching out from this remote post on the far west coast of of America, to illuminate itself and 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 uh, establish itself and and Disneyland was followed by Gidget movies and the surf records and that opened the door for this incredible pop music explosion to come out of the. Uh, Los yes. Angeles. Well, you
0: were you were selling the dream with the uh, uh, J- 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 Dean and Jan or Jan and Dean, um, which must have um, yes, to us English people. And obviously, I was not even about it at that stage. It must have been such a sort of you know we were still doing national service and probably rationing was still in the fifties. So seeing these kind of amazing images of America being sort of brought over, as well as the consumerism and this sort of like idea, that it was all sun surf and good times is quite you know it does stick in one's sort of consciousness quite a lot doesn't it and also at the same time there is these kind of the reality of those kind of relationships between different musicians and bands and artists and with those two especially that's kind of quite a telling part of the book isn't it
1: well the uh, nature of an ensemble piece like this is to stretch stress the relationships and uh how people uh, interacted to create other events. And that just goes on throughout the whole book from the very beginning of them all being in high school together, Jan, Dean, Bruce Johnston, uh, the drummer Sandy Nelson, the record producer Kim Fowley, uh, e- even the 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 girl who was known as Gidget was in that high school class. But the, so the relationships are really what sort of drive the narrative. Uh, although there's a musical spine to the narrative because they drop records all along the way, and there, there's a, a Spotify playlist for Hollywood Eden that, that will play that out for you. Right. But the relationships—I mean, they—they—they they, they go right from the very first page to the end. I mean, the the penultimate scene in London in Bruce Johnston's uh, uh, hotel suite at the Savoy where he uh, plays pet sounds for John Lennon and Paul McCartney. That's Kim Fowley who's waiting in the lobby to take him upstairs to meet the Beatles. Uh, His friend from University High in
0: 1958. Blimey, I know that it's so so intermingled, isn't it? And when you write about people like Kim Fowley, obviously on one level he was probably one of the untouchables and sort of some sort of God, and then sort of over the, past few years, decade, has, has sort of, has his kind of reputation and some of the things he did has been sort of absolutely horrendous. I mean, how did that sort of, having to try and write about that, how did that feel for you?
1: Well, I, I worked with Jackie Fox on um, a, 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 her story for a book proposal, and, and I totally believe uh, her account of uh, uh, Kim Fowley raping her. And uh, I knew Fowley, he was a creepy guy. As a young man, he was somewhat less creepy, but still creepy. Uh, I don't think that he is, uh, presents any kind of um, you know, heroic profile in the book. And in fact, Fowley was a classic Hollywood character, uh, the, the sort of person that could only exist in Hollywood. He, he wasn't a talent of any sort. He didn't make great records. He didn't write good songs. He couldn't sing. It's really unclear what he could do, but he stayed in the game. He had his fingers in the pie all along. He had something going on, something coming up. People yeah. like that can't exist in, in New York. It's do or die in New York. In Hollywood, you can fake your way for years. And and Fowley was just that kind of guy who was raised by this B-movie actor who was in 100 movies, but you've never heard of him. his mother was an actress who bailed early in life to marry well that's another hollywood move so he was just this classic sort of fagan-esque hollywood character yes and there must be lots of those layers
0: within the story that you keep sort of finding which must did it feel quite grubby i mean do you sort of feel that you've sort of you know you put the sort of light on in the room that everyone's been sort of happy to sort of party in and and then sort of finding that actually this is this is this is like i don't know just one of those unpleasant you know situations
1: i I like th- this kind of um writing i like it when other people do it i like when i do it I, I like to see honest pictures and 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 know what it was really like. This is not new to me uh you know i uh last book I had out was a, 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 an account of the Grateful Dead after Jerry Garcia died. You know, it's just one battle after another for 20 years with a happy ending where they collected a lot of money doing a big concert in Chicago. Uh, that, that book re- re- pulled the curtain back on the Grateful Dead world and, and, and it's, uh, that, they're the most protective of the rock bands. Uh, all the people that write about the Grateful Dead are deadheads. To me, the Grateful Dead were a local story that I kept up with. With the Chronicle, came to know them, found them pretty fascinating, uh, and and liked a lot of their music. But I I was not, you know, taken in by the whole mythology of it. Yeah. So you know, that's a lot of what I do. I mean, my Altamont books the same way. It doesn't treat the Stones with any special reverence, but I love the Stones. You know, that time, if there's such a thing, they could be my favorite rock band. On the other hand, as a reporter. Well, I want to tell the true story. I want to tell the real story. And true story is a funny word, uh, but real story I can live with that.
0: I kind of realise doing doing a lot of these interviews. Often it's about, especially if you interview different members of a band, you realise it's about who can who wants to control the narrative. And I know that with a few people they really like to tell the story and they have the narrative, and they get really annoyed when the bass player turns up or the drummer and says actually there is a bit more to that story that they've left out. And that is often the bit that's quite interesting. And that's when the sort of light comes on and everyone goes, oh, that's, that's a bit of a shame. I didn't realize you were all like that, or you were particularly <laughs> like that. So it's those moments, isn't it? And I, I suppose the 60s and that period from the late 50s as well, must be just kind of a golden sort of period for you sort of writing about and being able to still sort of analyze and sort of dig over it really
1: my books are more about musicians than music and I I tend to see musicians as heroes the way you would like athletes or or warriors uh in in that regard uh in Hollywood Eden there's a like a a number of recording sessions that are sort of detailed out as scenes because the recording sessions are like the battles that these uh uh, warriors uh, uh engage in and uh you know, with all heroes' journeys, you come from a place of complete innocence, and then you move towards self-knowledge, and that's the that's the story of Hollywood Eden. And 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 the path from innocence to self-knowledge is often treacherous. Yes, well, absolutely, because then you get sort of stuck in. I mean, there's bits
0: where you know I was quite surprised, but I've always been very interested in. I suppose Elvis and that kind of period of him, especially in his Vegas time, but with Colonel Parker, who appears within the book as well, working with a young Tommy Sands as well, isn't there? So that's right. Yeah. So so the, so the amount of characters that you can pull on and narrate the stories, does that is that quite difficult as a writer to know when to just stop that for a bit, or whether you can just keep following it down that cul-de-sac to another kind of um yeah, chapter?
1: And So of course the uh you know that that's one of the real important details of the of the writing process is being able to winnow down the narrative to its its most effective and efficient flow and and so I worked really hard in the case of Hollywood Eden to like not mention extraneous record titles or to keep characters out who uh, uh, just walk in and leave, you know, they, they, they may walk in, but they may not be identified. Uh, it's just so that the focus stays on this already pretty uh, variegated narrative. I mean, we're following half a dozen or more people through a very short and intense period in their lives. Yes. So, keeping that stuff straight and and keeping it tight so that the the, the rhythm of the thing continues to pull the narrative along. Yeah. That's, that's the trick.
0: And did you sort of find, because it's kind of a period I've always been, you know, fascinated with, with the beat generation, Jack Kerouac and then Ginsburg, and how this kind of particular surf music kind of is kind of either influenced or not influenced by the beat writers. I mean, did you sort of, delve into that aspect, particularly? Because I know well, from, you know, interviewing a lot of people, especially from that period, you know, everyone mentions, you know, On the Road and uh, Dean Moriarty and all these kind of characters. And then obviously there's a few others as well that comes along, like, Farrin Getty. you know, how did, because on one level that looks like the authentic stuff and the surf music has that appeal of, of, appear, uh, appearance of
1: being a little bit superficial. So I just wondered how you engaged with the two. So it's interesting you'd mention that you'd mentioned that. Uh, on the road was on the bestseller lists the exact same time Gidget was. And I found a lot of parallels between the Southern California surfing community and the beatnik culture that was developing around the same time up in San Francisco. I mean, obviously, they uh, uh, reflect the environments, right? The beatniks were indoors, they coffee shops, chess games, jazz the uh, Southern California thing was more outdoor, more athletic, uh, more open air, but Mm. jazz was involved uh, as was poetry. And the same kind of like rugged individualism, the nonconformity, the rejection of conventional society, that was going on with both the surfers and the beats. And I think they saw each other and recognized uh, uh, the kinship. And in, in Southern California, a lot of those guys that would have been considered beats also surfed or, or, or drove hot rods. The, the, uh, the artists at uh, the uh, Otis Art Institute were uh, affected by the Los Angeles culture while they created fine art that kind of reflected that. The fetish Finnish guys that, that uh, were um, so popular in the 60s trying very much from surfboard uh, construction and hot rod painting. So all that stuff was kind of fluid in California in a way it wasn't in more uh, uh, acculturated, established places like New York or London. Uh, in, in, In Southern California, that stuff just sort of was all in the mix.
0: Yes. And what's the kind of the musical origin of surf music? Where, what was the kind of the influences? Where did people, what were people listening to?
1: Before do wop Doo-wop. yeah I mean it wasn't called do-wop at the time that that comes later but yeah it was uh, the 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 young white teens of, of Los Angeles were not alone in this country but they discovered the rhythm and blues sound of New York on uh, nightly radio shows uh, by Hunter Hancock Art LeBeau, and uh, huggy boy right and, then those guys were playing records directed towards a black audience. But of course, the radio signal doesn't segregate. And and if the record stores and the clubs where the artists played were all down in South Central Los Angeles, and these kids were living up in the Hollywood Hills or in Brentwood, didn't make any difference. That was the cool music in, in the late 50s to listen to was the vocal group records. Uh, they were uh, funny. They were irreverent they were romantic and dreamy and, and most important of all, they were easy to sing.
0: Yes, this is true. And with most musical kind of genres that sort of I've, I've looked at and studied, as I can see that after about three or four years, it suddenly gets replaced because the kids, the 16 to 18 year olds want their own sort of soundtrack. How did bands, you know, how did a lot of these bands cope when the Beatles appeared and then Psychedelia and then sort of, uh, you know, the the kind of the Jimi Hendrix sound or the Doors, you know, I just wondered how people were trying to sort of still fit in and be relevant when, when sort of the
1: music scene was starting to change so rapidly. Some were able to, some weren't. Uh, The fact is that the, the generations of music that took place between 58 and 68, was just phenomenal. And you can look at uh, the, I'm talking about, and and the last record in my book is uh, October 66, Good Vibrations by the Beach Boys, possibly the greatest pop record ever made, but we go back to the beginning in in 1958, and Jan uh, is starting out in his garage with this doo-wop song called Jenny Lee, and and, and that's a top 10 record when he's a senior in high school. Uh, It's with Jan and Arnie, the predecessor to Jan and Dean. But there it is, that's the beginnings of this whole Southern California, West Coast pop sound. And it, it, it evolved rapidly. And the people that were there for a moment, flaked off and went away after having made their contribution and some were able to hang on uh, and and develop and evolve and, and and keep up with things and some weren't. I mean, the, yes. the whole parallel between Jan and Dean and the Beach Boys, by the time, Jam crashed his car, his records were completely irrelevant, way off base, and he'd lost the whole pop zeitgeist. But Brian Wilson, the, the guy he trained and showed how to work in the studio, he was making good vibrations.
0: Yes, absolutely. And then you had some, you know, brilliant people like Van Van Dyke Parks, who sort of appears Van Dyke. as well, who's just, you know, a, a, a colossal guy, but also comes over as one of
1: the nicest people and most intelligent people in music. Elaborately eloquent and verbal. I always feel like I'm hanging out with Mark Twain when I spend time with Van Dyke. He's he's <laughs> a, he's, he's a gem, uh, and and his viewpoint come on on the whole Beach Boys thing is entirely unique perspective because he just came into it from the outside and dropped into it, and you know wrote that album. Uh, he didn't have to have any of the family gobbledygook or all the, the external Beach Boy stuff. He just dropped into Brian's life.
0: Yes. And and sort of he didn't save him, but he suddenly sort of gave him some sort of ability to sort of navigate the next
1: period. It was a respite for Brian. They they had a a a a, a, a chemistry the music that Van Dyke and Brian uh, made together is, uh, you know, entirely personal to what they were about. And you know, uh, Brian was working on Good Vibrations all that time, and and he tried to get Van Dyke to write lyrics to Good Vibration. And Van Dyke said, "No, he just wants to write new stuff."
0: <laughs> That's amazing. Yes. And did you find because I know with you know going back to the Beats and Jack Karawak, his it's interesting how bitter and twisted he suddenly appears as as the Years goes by. So he's got that famous interview of him where he's completely drunk and starts sort of randomly singing. How did a lot of these particular artists who suddenly have that moment where they're like you are the number one to actually a slightly irrelevant? How did you sort of find they coped with that kind of emotional sort of torture almost of being irrelevant after such a short period of time but still being so young?
1: Well, that was always difficult when that happened. And people responded in many different ways. Uh, but that is sort of the underlying tragic overtone that follows all these people through Hollywood Eden it's, you know, how am I going to make this next move? How am I going to get to this next plateau? And, you know, I cut it off in in, in October 66 because I really feel that, that the journey was complete. The innocence was gone and they had arrived at the destination of self knowledge and now what they did with that is of less interest to me yeah. and and indeed the the whole thing starts to fall apart almost immediately after that
0: yes it's it's the it's the end of the chapter really isn't it and um it is i suppose what's quite brilliant about the book is that you've sort of managed to sort of bring it all together and to give it an, an, another part of that narrative which sometimes i suppose what i sort of feel is that this part often is quite forgotten isn't it in the sort of the the musical kind of narrative that happened after the war you know during the 50s because the because it part you know i know pet sounds always gets kind of well mentioned and the beach boys but a lot of the other characters and people are sort of they haven't got that book have they and this is the book that's going to sort of put them put it into some sort of context
1: it's not an unknown story uh, not only has the Beach Boys been written about extensively, you mentioned Nick Kent and his pieces uh, in NME on Pet Sounds are seminal uh, and uh, the Jan and Dean story is also something that's you know part of the lore in, in the United States there was an extremely popular TV movie called Dead Man's Curve in the late 70s some of the things that you know I'm digging out like I think the career of Bruce Johnston has been entirely underrated. He's not just the guy who joined the Beach Boys late in life. He was a major figure in Los Angeles music right from, you know, Jan Barry's garage, playing piano on some of those early Jan and Dean tapes. Uh, I think that Nancy Sinatra is someone who just somehow sort of slipped between the cracks of rock history, maybe because. Uh, you know, Rock History is largely written by men, but that, that record uh, of hers was such an important piece in, when it was released. And it represented a kind of personal triumph that had never really been explored before. I find her story very dramatic. Uh, the, the Sandy Nelson, the, the drummer who did all those instrumental hits and, and really sort of established the idea of, of, of a rock and roll star drummer. And, and his tragic story is just, you know, I don't know why that hasn't been fit in to some other narrative before, but it, it, it's snugly, tightly in, in a part of Hollywood Eden.
0: Yes, well, it's interesting with Bruce Johnson because he actually, he goes on and has quite an amazing career in the 70s, work with um, Barry Manilow, doesn't he? He does that famous song, I Write the Book, which is quite an epic track. That we all
1: well, Bruce, uh, Bruce, written a lot of songs. Disney Girls is a fine, fine Beach Boys record by him, and you know he was involved in the early uh, days of the Captain and Tennille act. I mean, it, uh, he, he produced an album by a new wave group. Uh, I think they were called the Tremblers. That uh, Peter Noon of Herman's Hermes was the lead singer on. I mean, he's he's always been had something going on besides the Beach Boys, and and he's always been a major uh, piston in the engine of the Beach Boys. But you know. The Wilson family so dominates that that narrative and Mike Love is, is sticks out as the sort of an, antithesis or the an, antagonist. Uh, Bruce just sort of off in the shadows. But I mean, he walked in, his first recording session with the Beach Boys was California Girls. Was, you know, he's pretty much a, a part of their music and yet he's not recognized that. He's the most trained musician in the Beach Boys. He can read and write music. He understands orchestrations. Uh, uh, played classical uh, piano as a kid. Uh, he'd produced many, many records by the time he was uh, in the Beach Boys, and of course he and Terry Melcher, Daris, Doris Day's son, they were Bruce and Terry and they they were <clears throat> very busy Beach Boys imitators for a couple of years before the Beach Boys uh, swooped down on it.
0: Yeah, I mean, he
1: produced a Richie Valens album and and played on, on Sandy Nelson hits like Teen Beat back in 59. It's just his 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 CV is just extraordinary.
0: Absolutely, and and um, and sort of with that in mind, what do you what have you started thinking is going to be your next book?
1: By the way. Well, I've I've got a project I'm looking at, at uh, later in the month. I'm going to go look at some uh, some uh, um, buddy's archive that that might be uh, uh, turn out to a book, and I've got a couple of people that. You know, uh, would make good ask, told too. I I I love those books, both as a reader and as a writer. They're 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 not the big laborious projects that these, uh, you know, histories are. Yes. But there there's like uh, the dancer Tony Basil. I've been bugging her for a year to try and you know get her to sit down and do a book. And uh, if she ever does, I, uh, it, you know, I'll I'll be right on that. That's a that's a great story, and she's a tremendous personality. Yes, well,
0: I managed to get to interview her last year, which was quite something, because I've always been fascinated with Tony since, well, I was 16, probably, and she came along That's a unique personality. Yes, I know. And then she sort of tours with David Bowie on his... um,
1: Bowie, Bette Midler, Tina Turner. Yeah, she's, you know, she's got the, the... You know what she told me that I just found amazing is that in all her show business career, whenever she auditioned, she got the part
0: that's 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 quite something isn't it (laughs) yeah well that would be that would be an interesting one i'm sure you know most people what i'm sort of finding with a lot of people i've interviewed is that they really like to sort of get to that point where they start archiving their sort of work or their their life story so it's it's surprising how many books have come out recently that have been written by various musicians and band members and even the lead thing as well, because it's never been told, so you know it's quite an interesting period. the, the world that archiving is, which I find fascinating so um
1: yeah, well again, so- the documentaries and the feature films now too, we're in a kind of fan de siècle, uh reappraisal of this whole art movement a- as the generation that created it grows into history right uh, the the rock music is a thing of the past, I mean new rock music it's not important. The Rolling Stones don't ever have to put out another record. Their, their mm. legacy is secure.
0: But do and, you, I mean, sort of going back to people like Kim Fowley, and, and also, is it Billy, Bill Graham, and all these kind of, and Colonel Parker, was it just the fact that there, it was so new, and, and this was like almost the first chapter of <laughs> sort of popular music, and there were so many things that were probably seedy, that, that gave it such kind of Longevity and sort of such memorable sort of hits, so to speak, and so many memorable songs and kind of classic albums and even classic kind of you know, artwork as well. It, you know, I just wondered if you sort of feel that the importance that we, the fan at that time, put onto it can never be replicated again and, and definitely not from the, the current generation.
1: Well, to me, and I, I've been, uh, you know, I had to sort of reappraise them records of the early 60s in in out of los angeles writing this book and they're very innocent and they're made in innocence they are made by people who are trying to express themselves who are on a mission this isn't like cunning commercial minded people who are trying to figure out a way to get on the best selling charts these are zealots who are following their bliss. And that's what is embedded in the record in a way that you're just not going to get out of, you know, the the professional Nashville musicians who uh, uh, are sitting around trying to figure out like what is going to sell. And I, I spent time in Nashville. Nashville's great there. incredible uh, musicianship. And, and But, you know, I never heard anybody talk about music as music. It was always like what can we do to get this record? What can we do to get this song to somebody? You know, it was like it didn't exist as a as an art factor. It was always an industrial thing. Yeah. But none of these mute records were made in that way. They certainly served that way, right? I mean, the uh, tremendous commercial success of these records led the way for the record industry of the late '60s and early '70s and the incredible boom that brought Fleetwood Mac and Peter Frampton and all that crazy stuff. But when it was just these little records with the big holes that were bought by teenagers, the people who were making them were of the audience and they were part of the audience. And the whole thing had a unit, a unity that stays with the music to this day. Yes. Well, it's interesting thinking of the Rolling
0: Stones, because there was that film, is it shine a light, which was done by Martin Scorsese. And there was a clip of, Mick in probably 63, that was asked, You know, how long do you think this will last? Uh, yeah, you think will he thought he could keep it
1: for? going a couple of years.
0: And he looked down with we um, <laughs> 18 months, and we all
1: laughing, you know, knowing that actually it's decades, 50 plus When the years. Beach Boys had their first hit, it was not anticipated that a rock group would have anything more than a second hit, a follow-up. It wouldn't be as big as the first hit, and then there would be a third record that just didn't do anything. That was how rock group's careers went. And in fact, one of the things that Brian did was in the studio in the very early days, they finished a complete take that had no mistakes on it. And the engineer was ready to move on. And Brian said, no, no, that didn't feel good enough. And the engineer looked at him like, what? It didn't feel good? No, that didn't feel good enough. Well, okay. So, I mean, that's the level that the industry was at at that point was like they didn't even treat it as a, an artwork or, or uh, a, a creative enterprise. It was just something slap this down on tape. Once there were no mistakes, we go on to the next one. Time is money, you know, that kind of stuff. And Brian Wilson saw it entirely differently. So did Jan Berry. So did Phil Spector. So did these people that changed this music and brought it into what it became.
0: Yes. And it, but it's interesting that still there are those classic albums. I think, you know, Black Sabbath's first album was recorded in a day because they'd been playing it for years. They didn't have much studio time. Elvis Costello's first album, My Name is True, that was recorded in a in, an, in a 24 hours with Nick Lowe from Stiff Records. And again, they just uh, had a And Clover of, from Marin County. Yes, which had the famous... Um, Lead singer who went on to do great things. Well,
1: Huey didn't make the Elvis sessions, he went to Amsterdam that weekend.
0: (laughs) Not many people know about Clover, do they? They were just uh, one of those bands, a bit like Nils Lofgren. I think he was like, Right, I'm ready for it. And it's like, Oh, sorry, punks just appeared, so probably not the good time. Yes, they needed to get a haircut, didn't they? So there you go. So if you, I mean, if you could have said, I mean, because you've had quite an amazing career, but if you could have said something to a a 16 or 18-year-old self now writing, is there something that you would have just kind of wanted to whispered in their ear just to sort of look out for or say, yes, keep doing that, but try to avoid doing this?
1: Well, uh, you know, advice to the... uh, um, you know starting out writers not exactly my specialty or anything uh i i i was diligent and diligence uh, is, is more important than talent um and and i uh, if if i had to like put my finger on something that that was the factor that, that accounted for me being able to spend my life writing about rock bands it was because i was diligent and determined to do that uh i i really don't think i treated it with tremendous seriousness until i was about 40 years old uh the, before that I, I just felt like i was you know part of the party and 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 the the least important thing that i had to do all day was get up early and write the review from the night before yes. And when that was done i could go back to the party
0: yeah i mean was there a particular writer that you looked at and and i know it nick nick came i mentioned him i interviewed him recently he mentioned that he would sort of He'd sort of realized when he reread, I think Nick Cohen's book, that he'd really ripped off Nick Cohen and went, oh, blimey, that's embarrassing, but turned oh, that's all right, I've got away with it. Was there any particular writer at the time that you, you sort of looked at and thought, Oh yes, actually this is somebody that I'd love to sort of kind of you know try and get into that vibe?
1: Well, so Ralph Gleason was the columnist for the Chronicle when I was growing up. So I I, I read Ralph Gleason for years and years and years, it, it, he was extremely formative in, in my education as a, a music appreciator and a music writer. Uh, the kind of guys you're talking about, Nick Cant, Nick Cohn, uh, Nick Toshes, why are they all named Nick? Uh, <laughs> the, uh the, have, a, 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 an eye for the, uh, the dark and tawdry, um, I resonate with that. Uh, it, 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 uh, it, it, the two great influences on my writing, as a newspaper writer, I took a ton of cues from sports writers. They seem to be on to what it was to connect with an audience on a daily basis. In my, in my books, I tend to uh, 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 draw more from uh, crime fiction and and the the kind of spare hard uh ironic writing uh you find like in elmore leonard or or more recently don winslow
0: right yes so when you're writing you've got that voice in your head that you're sort of really thinking no keep it
1: in this this kind of style well you you know the the material determines the voice right i mean i'm 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 not some A a monolithic writer that just applies this this paste to every topic I I, I really try to find a a way to tell the story that's suitable to the story that's being told
0: yes absolutely well look Joel thank you ever so much for this this has been David thank you it's been amazing and um, what what, what part of uh, London am I in well actually just out of London Norwich have you come across Norwich I know Norwich norwich a fine city alan partridge comes from norwich so there you go alan partridge an unknown figure in (laughs)
1: americans
0: did you come across oh he was the guy from altamont who was kind of part of the stones lineup who helped organize the the kind of the gig sam pardon sam cutler yes yes i did an interview with sam recently as well so uh he was Sam's back
1: in Australia battling cancer for like the fifth or sixth time. He is a tough son of a bitch. He is. Uh, and and, and, still... and a, a charming pirate of a rock and roll fiend uh, who uh, I thought was the absolute star of the Grateful Dead documentary.
0: <laughs> yes, quite a, quite a character.
1: We did a, a Facebook Live together for uh, uh, the Altamont book that that uh, drew some massive audience because sam has this incredible following and people know who he is and you know they all know that he's the guy that was in the middle of that shit show uh uh, and he's just a phenomenal guy i love sam cutler
0: (laughs) yes that was something else wasn't it good old Sam. anyway look thank you ever so much and i'll um i can post you the link and you can use it and i'll post it to your DR guy as
1: well. I think his name's Ben, so that's good. Ben and Bob, that's one of those guys. Thank you, David. I really enjoyed it.
0: Take care. See you later. Bye-bye. That was was very kind of him. And anyway, that was me. I like to leave those bits in because it always sounds a bit sort of apologetic and being English, we like to sort of fumble over most things. Um, Yes, for my amusement, really. So that was me in conversation with the writer, Joel Selvin, who's brought a book out called... um, it is, I'll give you the full title, Hollywood Eden, Electric Guitars, Fast Cars and the Myth of Californian or California Paradise, which is um, available from all good bookshops and online. Ananser Press, it is. So um, I'm not sure if that's going to help at all. But anyway, he's done some fantastic other books, one on Eltamont and one also on The Grateful Dead. Check it out. It might just blow your mind. And uh, if you want to contact me for some random, but nice reason, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do The C86 Show. You'll find me there. And also all these have been archived and you can find those on Spotify, iTunes and Podbean. So that's it. Thank you again. I'm going to leave you there. Have a great week. Stay safe.